When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. <clears throat> now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord, before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, and so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven, and of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. <clears throat> as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, 
and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him while, stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padamaram and to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padanaram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take a wife from there, and that he blessed him, and he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padanaram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. God add understanding to his word. Spirit, as we come to your word, Father, we ask that you would give us open eyes, open ears, and soft hearts. Lord, we ask that you would accomplish all of your purpose in us, that you would glorify yourself through us, not only in our gathering here this morning, but in the effects of it, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would come to walk further in step with Jesus, and so bring you glory. May the works you bring out in us adorn the gospel you have brought us to preach. And Lord, may it be on each of our lips throughout the week as we work together in the mission that you have called us to in sharing the good news with all people. Lord, to this end, we ask for everything we need. There are those who are suffering now in our congregation with sickness and lack, whether it is of health relationship, or finances, Lord, we ask that you would be our provision and that we would look solely to you. And we also ask that you would bless us with opportunities to work as you lead us to as the church, to care for one another. We lift up Conrad to you as he suffers. We ask that you would preserve his life. We ask that you would heal him for the blessing that he is to us, God. We ask um, that you would keep him with us and the many others, Lord, who are suffering. 
We ask that we would not only grieve with them, but that we would lift them to you in our practice each day. Train us in righteousness through your word, by your spirit. Amen. Well, today is uh, one of my very favorite holidays. I look forward to Reformation Day every year. And it is uh, truly, honestly, I'm not being sarcastic. It is one of my favorite times of year, Reformation Day. It's, we're not having a Reformation party this year. Uh, but I do want to remind you of what God did in bringing about a reformation of the church. The reformation was necessary because people during the Middle Ages forgot the answers to four very important questions. And I'm quoting from a a TGC Canada article by Michael Haken. The four important questions that the church forgot the answers to was what saves a person from judgment and hell? They forgot. They no longer remembered. And secondly, they forgot who saves us from judgment and hell. And then they forgot how do we know the answer to these two questions. They forgot to rely on the Bible rather than the teachings of religious instructors and priests. And then given these answers, how should we worship in response to God's goodness in saving us from judgment and hell through the obedience of Christ Jesus alone. And so the Reformation was not only a recovery of these basic Christian truths about the gospel, but it is also a recovery of how we need to respond to God in light of His wondrous work we've been singing about this morning. See, the Reformation was not only a time of getting things theologically correct, but it was a time of revival as well. We cannot distinguish revival from biblical reform because they are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have the presence of the Holy Spirit reforming the church without His inbreathing of new life into men and women and into churches. Nor can one have the Spirit reviving God's people without reminding them of the truths of Scripture that they have forgotten or ignored. And so we have these two things taking place as we are reformed by God's Word and by His Spirit. We are both reformed in our thinking, transformed by the renewing of our minds, and we are revived by God's Spirit at work in us as we come to the Scriptures. Now, we've bitten off a great big chunk of the Scriptures this morning. Genesis, uh, as we've been working through, has no such thing as a one-generational faith. Because the promise of God to live in relational peace with His chosen ones and to extend blessing to them pointed to the descendant of Adam and Eve, a new Adam, and to the true descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ. There was this great tension and concern regarding the passing down of the promised blessing. Could the promise be safely entrusted to the next generation? So even in the Old Testament, as we do, they look towards God's saving work in the one person, Jesus Christ. They did not know his name. They only knew that he was going to come, a seed or an offspring of Eve, a seed or an offspring of Abraham. And we see here in, in the text we've read this morning, the family in Genesis is preoccupied with blessing, as, as though it matters somehow more than the things that were visible. It's passed along like a tangible thing that can be held and kept. Now, to the faithful, it is something somehow more real than food, clothing, and shelter. Here in our text this morning, it is given to Jacob, the younger son, at the expense of Esau, the elder, in accordance with God's inscrutable decree of Genesis 25:23, that the younger would receive what might have automatically come to the older son. This happened in in past texts that we've looked at. The choice of God, we also see, has produced conflict. 
And the narrator takes care here to emphasize the favoritism and separation that characterize this family uh, by always placing the four family members into groups of two throughout. They are never in unity together. It's always two off here plotting, two off here. There's this great separation. And this family rivalry and the parental favoritism is also highlighted uh, where Esau is designated as Isaac's son, and Jacob is referred to as Rebekah's son, uh, chapter 27, verses 5 to 6. And when, in speaking to Jacob, Rebekah refers to Isaac as your father, uh, rather than my husband, and to Esau as your brother, and not my son. So we're going to read parts of this again. Uh, starting in chapter 26, verse 34 and 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to be his wife. Did I do something? No? Okay. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basmath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. In this prologue to the story, so there's a main central story here, and then there's a prologue and epilogue, both about Esau and his marriages. And in this prologue, Esau continues to show his disdain for God's covenant and for his parents by marrying into the Canaanite line. Now, we're not told whether these marriages were because of Isaac's negligence in failing to direct him properly, as we see later, or, and as Isaac's father had done for him, or it just could be Esau is strong-willed and in rebellion against his parents. We are only aware that Esau has broken with the accepted patriarchal practice uh, by setting up his own marriages in the first place, and then he had tied himself to those whom God had promised to destroy. Intermarriage with the Canaanites is a very serious and and regular theme in Genesis and and in much of the Old Testament. Part of this was because these were the people who were in the land where Israel was called to be. But to the first audience, this is such an important message because the Canaanite religion, uh, as I see it and I look through history, it, it was this very seductive religion. Uh, Canaan was conquered in biblical times by two different people groups, both Israel and then later the Philistines, and both very quickly came to worship the Canaanite gods rather than the gods they entered the land with. See, what was, I believe, seductive about the Canaanite religion is they really ultimately worshipped the desires of their hearts. The Canaanite gods represented fertility and uh, blessing and food. And so these religions didn't tell you to turn your heart towards anything, but ultimately to follow your heart, to seek the desires that your heart is already filled with, the worldly desires and also provided a clear formula for attaining it. Man-made religion oftentimes looks like this. What do we already desire? Let's look for that. You desire people to think well of you. You desire uh, all these good things. It's like there's a word that keeps popping into my head and I can't quite grasp. Isn't that awkward? This, this provision that we, we desire, and, and then it just gives this formula of easy way of getting it. And so the intermarriage with the Canaanites was forbidden, not because of a racial distinction, because we do at times see Canaanites become part of God's people, and then there's no problem with intermarriage. So it's not some sort of racial purity thing, but it is about staying pure from these uh, worldly deception and this seductive religion that was there. And so this note sets up the drama to follow. It's actually an important part of the story of the passing on of the blessing because not only has God already made it clear that Jacob was to receive the birthright and blessing, 
But Esau has already made it clear that he has despised it. And he has disqualified himself as someone who could lead the covenant people into the blessings of God. Because he has already intermarried with the Canaanites, the Hittite people. And all this also demonstrates how foolish Isaac's attempt to bless Esau actually was. So the story can't be limited just to chapter 27. It's kind of this this neat little chapter that's all one story. But the structural indicators, remember those chapters are not part of the original Bible. They're just something we've done so that we can tell you where to look it up. And so there's just the, the little bit before and the little bit after that are actually a part of this story in that they are a prologue and an epilogue. It's not actually a part of the main story. The entire account is, though, framed first by the report of Esau's wives who made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And then finally, by the report that Esau married yet again into the family of Ishmael, Isaac's half-brother. And So this is why Jen had to read such a long passage this morning. This is important to the narrative because God will protect Jacob where Isaac has not protected his sons. Esau has already begun to intermarry with the Canaanites. And God keeps Jacob from intermarriage with the Canaanites through the conflict his selection has caused, which is outlined in this chapter. So this is, it's kind of a behind-the-scenes thing that you only understand when you look at the beginning and end, that a big part of it is God has allowed this conflict so that Jacob will get sent out. Let's read verses 1 to 4. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious foods such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. What modern readers often miss here is that this first scene between Isaac and Esau describes their plan to rebel against God's plan and their disobedience to his commands. God had already made his choice of Jacob over Esau clear to Isaac and Rebekah. And yet here, Isaac attempts this clandestine blessing ritual Uh, where normally and everywhere else in Genesis, this family blessing would be a public affair. And so he tries to secretly do the ritual, uh, and only because Rebecca happens to overhear Isaac's plan is it thwarted. Esau, likewise, has already sold this birthright to Jacob. Perhaps in an effort to salve his own conscience, he is the only one who attempts to divide the birthright from the blessing. Later stating, verse 36, he has cheated me these two times. But according to the scriptures, and especially Hebrews 12, 17, the birthright was the blessing. And the blessing, the inheritance. There was no separation between these two things. So Jacob has not strictly treated, uh, cheated him at all. Not, none, not even... Once, never mind twice, he has already bought, albeit at a steep discount, what he will now take through deception. Esau is not only Isaac's favorite, but they have quite a lot in common. The expressions used in Isaac's instructions recall uh, the narrative of the sale of the birthright, where Esau sells his birthright to Jacob, for there it was reported that Isaac loved Esau because of the taste of venison. He loved the food. Here, it is the same love of delicious food that characterizes Isaac's decision to bless Esau. And this is actually made pretty clear by the way it is written. The the word uh, here for delicious food and its variants are used nine times in this passage. It keeps on saying delicious food, delicious food in Isaac's instructions, and then in Rebekah's. And also repeated here is Isaac's love for such food. And this stands out because this is a term that's not normally used for things that people like. It's almost exclusively used for personal relationships, such in that a man's love for a woman. 
And so when we, we get this repeated so many times, nine times delicious food, and then in conjunction with this weird love that Isaac has for food, this is a guy who loves his food. Isaac was like Esau, who sold his birthright for bread and stew. It's the, the satisfaction of a physical appetite that drives Isaac's disobedience just as it drives Esau's. We should, at this point, be addressing our own lives. How are we driven by physical appetites to go against the plan and command of God? Because of this, Isaac desires to bless Esau with all his soul, which is saying much more than something like, with all my heart. He is saying that he will bless Esau with all of his resources, everything that he has, with all the blessing that he had received, with all his desire and vitality, his lifetime of blessing. And so the first scene sets the stage. There's a plan to go against the plan of God. Verse 5. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah's mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall be seen to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son, and the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious food and bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Thus ends the second scene. We become aware through the narrative that one of these sons will not receive the full blessing. For there is only one such blessing to be given. We don't know why, other than that it is God's choice and that God chose to give this blessing to Jacob rather than Esau, which is a reversal of the natural or cultural order of things. We also know, because there is one blessing, that those without the blessing will be left empty-handed and without the certainty of life promised by God. And because of this, we can begin to understand the behavior of these four individuals as they seek to obtain it by any means necessary or to confirm it for their favored child. While he, he seems to have no moral objection to the plan, Jacob does see the inherent risk involved, uh, for to be caught in this deception would certainly result in cursing rather than in blessing. He already knows his father doesn't want to give him the blessing. He is now going to put himself in a dangerous situation. But knowing the stakes, Rebecca stakes her life on her convictions. Unlike Isaac, she holds to the prophecy she's been given on behalf of her son, the older shall serve the younger. And so it is with this confidence in the character of God's promise that she's sure that God will bring about, even if she thinks it will require her deception, uh, she can dismiss Jacob's fears. And so, clothed with Esau's robes and other accoutrements, the younger son replaced the older in order to receive the blessing. Verse 18. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, 
because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his, brother's Esau, his brother Esau's hand. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Now this, this scene continues for two more verses, but I want to stop here and look at the blessing separately. While Esau is out following the directions of his father, Jacob obeys his mother. As directed, he lies, I am Esau. But upon Isaac's question of the quick timing, he claims God's blessing on his hunt. And he's asked again and again repeats his lie. But we, we should see here that not only does he deceive, but he has blasphemed by speaking falsely of the Lord in order to cover up his deception. Reminds me of uh, Peter's denial of Christ. Now, he doesn't blaspheme there, but he, uh, upon being asked a final time if he knew Jesus, he lies for the third time and then calls a curse upon himself if he's lying. It's just this over-the-top way that is quite common to liars to, to say, you know, as God is my witness, or uh, be it so unto me in the Bible. You know, there's this... Uh, a claim to absolute authority. You can believe me. Trust me. It's a small element in our passage, and I don't want to put much time into it, but it is important for us to notice how terrible it is to hide our deceitfulness with false claims about God. False claims about what God has said or has done. To bear false witness is to break the commandment. To bear false witness about God is to blaspheme. And so, Jacob's sin is, is very serious here, much more even than uh, just telling a lie. But as serious as Jacob's sin is, this is not a spiritual treatise on morality. At the end of the scene, we see Jacob receive the blessing he has sought despite his obvious sin and serious sin. We might wonder at this point if the blessing would have turned out differently without the deception, or if the deception was necessary, the deciding factor. But while it might appear that the deception won the blessing, the fact is, what do we already know? We already know that the blessing belonged to Jacob all along. So while it might seem like this deception won the day, those who are reading the Bible carefully and seeing the work of God to bring about his purposes know that this already belongs to Jacob. Yes, Jacob and Rebekah's deception is used by God as a tool for the blessing to go the way already decided upon, but there is much more working against Isaac than the cunning of Rebekah. There's also the power of God at work for Jacob. The inscrutable power of the blessing works its will. God has already spoken. It cannot go any other way. The blessing is this, verse 28. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Jacob's descendants, Israel, would subjugate those of Esau, the nation of Edom. And then the promise to Esau, verse 40, you shall break his yoke from your neck, would finally be fulfilled in 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 20 to 22, when Edom won its independence from Judah. But these promises to Jacob and ultimately Israel would 
only be fully fulfilled when Jesus, the Messiah, had come and the house of David had been rebuilt to exercise authority over Edom. And so the prophet Amos writes, Amos 9, 11 to 12, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. So this is, let me stop there for a second. This is after Edom has been conquered by Israel and then has won their freedom. This is after David has ruled and then has died. It says, on that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who has done this or who does this, sorry. And so the apostles in the New Testament rightly saw the extension of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations as the beginning of bringing the nations under the authority of the Messiah. And this included not only the remnant of Edom, so ultimately this is good news for some of Esau's descendants. The remnant of Edom, along with all those from among the nations who are called by my name, God says, he will bring under the rule of the Messiah. And so in Acts 15, James quotes this passage in Amos when speaking of the addition of the Gentiles to the people of God. Jacob has received the blessing God gave to Abraham. And we have spoken in the past at length about the blessing God gave to Abraham, which is granted to all those who believe and who put their hope in Jesus, the Messiah, and thereby become children of God through Abraham by faith. We become sons and daughters of Abraham when we follow in Abraham's faith, the Bible teaches us. So there's a main point here in the first three scenes and and then a second main point in the following three. The main point here in these first three scenes is that God's purposes are fulfilled no matter what. All of the family members live sinfully. All of them were at fault. Isaac knew that God had expressed his plan to bless Jacob over his older brother. Genesis 25, 23. And then he set out to thwart God's plan by trying to secretly bless Esau. Esau broke the oath he had sworn to Jacob when he sold him his birthright. Genesis 25, 33. By playing along with Isaac's scheme. Rebekah and Jacob... Though having a just cause, each tried to achieve God's blessing by deception without faith or love. And despite all of this, God perfectly accomplishes all of his purposes. Everything he has promised comes to pass. When he is opposed, he brings it to nothing. Even when the recipient of the promise uh, threatens it through deception, And foolish schemes, he protects and he provides because everything God has spoken will come to pass. So you can't contrive of a scene where everyone does opposite of what God would have them do. Uh, Some are directly opposing him. Some are trying to accomplish his purposes by nefarious and foolish means. And God, through it all, accomplishes exactly what he has spoken. He accomplishes both the blessing of Jacob over Esau and the division that he has prophesied over them from the start. Then where the first three scenes show how God's purposes are fulfilled despite disobedience, opposition, or sinful methods, the the next three scenes outline the fallout of such deception and manipulative means. Turn with me to verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. 
But he said, your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? Heal, for he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. The repercussions of the deception of Jacob and Rebekah and, and the sinful plan of Isaac and Esau is that it causes great distress for the members of the family. Isaac is abruptly apoplectic and, and filled with terror-filled trembling, verse 33. In, in an instant, everything is clear to him. His plan to oppose God's plan is irreversibly shattered in a moment. Even his presupposition that he is a master in his own house is destroyed. He is not in control, not even of the things that felt like they were in his control. There is something at work outside Isaac's control, and it is clear to him here. He thought he was in charge. He thought he was directing things as he wished. We can find ourselves in this very situation. Oftentimes, people come to me and they say, I just have this terrible feeling of being out of control. And I say, well, that's good. Those times that you feel you are in control are a lie. You're not. God is in control. And Jacob here realizes it, or Jacob, Isaac here realizes it and trembles. If he had simply blessed Jacob because of deception. That would be one thing. But Isaac has inadvertently blessed Jacob in fulfillment of the oracle of God. And this is another matter entirely. He cannot retract the blessing because he realizes God has already blessed Jacob. He's just giving it his stamp and God's going to force him to. We don't know if Isaac intended to contravene God's plans, but we see him realize that he, what he has been trying to do has been countered according to God's plan. Esau, the elder, the son of entitlement, still can't believe what has happened. He urges passionately and bitterly, verse 34, Bless me, even me also, O my father. The narrator does a very good job in this passage of drawing our hearts to Esau. I don't know, just out of curiosity, how many of you here prefer, at least in your heart, have a feeling of, of fondness towards Esau more than Jacob? Anybody? How many of you think Jacob's the winner here? You like Jacob more. How many of you are not playing my game? Okay, how many of you, just reading this, how many of you are like feel for Esau more than you feel for Jacob. And how many of you feel for Jacob? Okay, so 10% felt for Esau and nobody felt for Jacob. Fantastic. Okay. <laughs> I'll just move on then. The, the author does this amazing job of drawing us to Esau. Now, this may be just out of his own cultural background because the firstborn is the one who's supposed to get the stuff. But... Esau is this pitiable character here. Bless me. Is there not a blessing for me as well? But Isaac knows better. He knows now that it is beyond his power to recall God's blessing on Jacob in order to present it to Esau. Despite knowing that God had elected Jacob, he had intended to give everything to Esau and nothing to Jacob, but now he is powerless to bless Esau in the face of God. He is empty-handed, and so he gives 
a blessing which is scarcely a blessing to his precious and favored son, an anti-blessing. And because of the lack of blessing, Esau would live off of war and plunder like a predator. By your sword you shall live. And even though he will be accustomed to living by the sword, it will not give him dominion over his brother. Jacob will never be among his victims, though he might plot murder in his heart. The best Esau's family could hope for was a brief reprieve. You shall break his yoke from your neck. Not only did the deception bring great distress for the father and elder brother, it also results in the distress and loss for Rebekah and Jacob as well. Verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Esau, determined in his heart to kill Jacob once their father had died. And Rebekah, again, she's got her ear to the wall. (laughs) She hears of his mutterings and that he was consoling himself in the meantime by making murderous plans. What had God promised to Jacob and Esau? He had promised division. And he had promised this division and conflict first when he cursed the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The hatred and murder in Esau's heart towards the chosen son identifies him as offspring of the serpent, just like Cain, who murdered his brother when he received God's favor. Esau became angry over his brother's possession of God's blessing. The end result of Jacob and Rebekah's deception is that they would reap hatred from Esau and separation from each other. Rebekah would never in Scripture see Jacob again. Ominously, she disappears after this scene. There's no notice of her death. The the narrator actually memorializes the death of Deborah, her nurse, but there is nothing for Rebecca, despite the fact that she is the chief actor in this story. Because while her values spiritually were sound, she knew the need for the promise and to follow in what God had promised for Jacob, her methods were deplorable. There's quite a lot in Scripture, and I'm going to skip over it, but there's quite a lot in Scripture about how God feels about people who take advantage of blind people. And uh, so they're, they're, it's, uh, the original audience probably would have been even much more shocked at her willingness to take advantage of Isaac this way. She values the promise, and she has de- determined that it should go to her son, but does, she does not trust that God will bring about his purposes without her sinful scheme. And so while God does use this incident to bestow the blessing on the chosen son, he does not condone her actions. Rebecca and Jacob, and we need to see this as we read this story, Rebecca and Jacob gained nothing. And they lost a great deal by their wicked interference. Well, you say, they gain nothing, what? They gain nothing, for God had promised that the birthright would be Jacob's. And if they would have trusted him for it, it would have come to him in a way that would be to his credit, not to his shame, memorialized in Scripture for all time. And they lost a great deal. 
The mother lost her son, both sons in a sense, because she has lost a relationship with Esau, and Jacob had to flee for his life. And for all we know, Rebekah never saw him again. This separation is evidence that their sin of deceit and manipulation are not simply against others, but sins against God. Jacob lost all the comforts of home, all those possessions his father had accumulated. He had to flee with nothing but his staff, an outcast. From this first false step onwards to his death, he was pursued by misfortune, always in conflict, constantly being deceived. And though he put on different clothes to deceive his father, he is later deceived multiple times by those who put on different clothes. We'll get to those stories in other weeks. He was pursued by this conflict and misfortune until his own verdict on his life was Genesis 47, 9. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. We must not stoop to deceptive, manipulative schemes to gain what we think God's will is for us. We must strive to achieve God's will righteously, trusting Him to bring it about. It is tragic when those who call themselves Christians lie, cheat, steal, and otherwise try to manipulate circumstances for their benefit. It's it's more horrifying than when others do it because when Christians or so-called Christians do it, it means they have failed to trust God's sovereign control of the situation. And we think that we have to take it into our own hands. Church, I have seen this with my own eyes so many times, and especially grievously when it comes to churches, where people will consider their reputation more important than obedience, will consider what they consider the success of their ministry to be more important than obedience and honesty, and will lie, will, will slander others, will act deceitfully and manipulatively to achieve what they think of as God's will for their ministry and their life. And ultimately, God will not allow His blessings to be secured through deceptive and manipulative means. In what ways are we tempted to maintain our lifestyle, our reputation, what the way of life we enjoy through deception? Now, I have, I've specifically chosen not to use the most pertinent examples this morning because then I think you would not remember much else from this message because it would be so politically charged. But we can trust God that He will bring about His purposes for us and so we can live in an upright manner which is not an evidence of our own morality but an evidence of our trust in our God when we trust Him that He will bring about His purposes and that His purposes for us are good, when we trust that He is a good God, a loving Father, we will stop scrambling in wicked ways. We will stop trying to grasp those things that we think we deserve. We will stop trying to make His will happen for us through evil means. The Apostle Paul instructed believers to renounce such hidden things of shame and live honestly and transparently before all people without deception or craft, even, he says, when presenting the gospel. And so 2 Corinthians 4, 2, he says, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. See, there, Paul admits that there is a temptation among those who share the gospel, among those who are sharing the faith with others, to be underhanded in the way that we would present God's word. To choose parts of it to, to ignore or to pass by. To come and, and say, well, this Sunday we would come to this passage, but we're going to skip that one because it's pretty controversial. We're going to skip that one because we don't like what it says. This is what he's talking about. We, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but to make an open statement of the truth. And so, both in the way we live our lives, 
and in, in the way that our ministry works forth, we must be open and honest about what we believe, open and honest with the way we comport ourselves in business, in school, in relationships, trusting that even if it were to come out what kind of people we really are, that God's blessing is secure. Many of us refuse to repent and confess sin because we don't want people to know who we are. But the reality is when we live in honesty, it is because we have trusted that God will work things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So Isaac set aside God's will for his own. Esau broke his pledge with Jacob despite having sold him his inheritance already. Rebekah knew the plan of God but did not trust him to accomplish it. Instead, with Jacob, attempted to ensure God's plan to bless by deceit, manipulative, and deplorable measures which result in danger, separation, and ultimately a threat to the promise. But finally, and the, fi- the third point here is God's people retain the promise of blessing despite their sin and the predicaments they bring on themselves. Praise God. So point one is God will bring about all his purposes no matter what. Point two is we cannot operate in a sinful way and somehow bring about the blessing. It will have repercussions, and we see this in the repercussions of the next three scenes. But finally, we find out that God's people, despite this, still receive the promise. Genesis 27, verse 46. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padanaram, Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful. And multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, and that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. Do you see how this works out? Through it all, at the end, Jacob receives the blessing. And what's important here is that he received the blessing wholeheartedly from Isaac, face to face, without deception. Isaac has been rebuked by God for trying to contravene God's plan. Now Rebekah continues to contend for her son with a, a subtle rebuke of her own against Isaac's favoritism of Esau. And she brings up again Esau's wives, uh, they're now again in the picture. Remember, this is how we started. This is how we'll end. His marriage has made the lives of his parents exceedingly bitter and loathsome. But on the other hand, says Rebecca, in my words, there's still hope for Jacob. Esau is married to these horrible Canaanite women, these Hittites. I wish I were dead is basically what she says. And then, but Jacob, there's still hope. And so, Isaac gives him the same command, both positively and negatively, as his father Abraham had given to his servant, who was sent to find Isaac a wife. Esau was not protected from this. Jacob is now, because of this conflict, his mother comes up with a scheme to get him out of there so he's not murdered by his brother, and his father's like, yeah, we probably, oh yeah, that thing that my father did for me, and I was told by God not to marry into the Canaanite family, and our people are not supposed to marry into the Canaanite families, oh yeah, let's, uh, let's save Jacob. And so once again, Isaac blessed Jacob with the blessing of Abraham, which was handed down to him, this time with a full knowledge of what he was doing. This is super important to the story of the Bible because in this action, Isaac took his place among the patriarchs. 
This was his act of faith that showed that he was one of God's faithful people. See, Abraham had done the same thing in a sense, where he beseeched God to bless his favorite son, Ishmael. Genesis 17, 18. But by God's mercy and grace, Abraham was brought to the point of obedience toward the end of his life, and he sent Ishmael and all his other sons out of the land to protect the promise for Isaac. This will happen also to Jacob, who uh, throughout his life is in conflict and constantly trying to grasp and fight things. And that the end of Genesis will show that he was on board with the plan of God, and he finally comes to put his hope and trust in God. Genesis 48, 14, by granting the blessing of the firstborn to Joseph's younger son, Ephraim. And, and then he goes on to grant the same blessing to his younger son, Judah. Genesis 49, 8 to 12 who would become the ancestor of first King David and then of Jesus, the Messiah, according to his human nature. And so Isaac does the same. All three patriarchs have this end-of-life experience where they, they have to let go of what they want, their plan for how life is going to work out, their plan for the future for their lineage, and just choose to embrace God's plan. And he has changed their minds by his goodness and faithfulness to them. So we can be encouraged that God will use us despite all of our failings. But we must also recognize that real consequences exist for our sin and arrogance. Bruce Waltke writes this, Most of us can recognize ourselves in Isaac. We often minister with impure motives and misdirected intentions but we exercise faith and God still accomplishes his good work, often reproving us in the process. Church, this has been my life of ministry. God is good. God fulfills his plan through a family of both faith and failure. Isaac was a man of faith despite his failures, just as Rebecca believed God's word despite her failure to trust in his plan. Jacob highly valued the blessing of God, even as he sought it through nefarious means. Esau, well, Esau is another story. The epilogue is as anticlimactic as it is depressing. Uh, Those just handful of you that felt for Esau, maybe you'll feel for him Now, verse 6, chapter 28, verse 6. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboeth. The message to Israel was clear early on to inherit the blessings of the covenant, they were to remain separate from the Canaanites. And this is a point that still applies to believers today that spiritual purity has to be maintained and that marriages outside the faith are a detriment to passing on of the faith. But Esau is so tragic here, so pitiable. He so badly wants to belong. He wants to please his father, it says. But he lacks the spiritual perception that would connect him to this family of faith. Unbelievably, only now does he recognize that marrying Canaanite wives is not appropriate in this family. And so he tries to fix it by adding another wife who he thought would be more acceptable. Poor Esau, the unchosen son of Isaac, was trying to gain his parents' approval by marrying the daughter of the unchosen line of Ishmael. Earlier, Esau had despised his birthright. And now he continues to fail to understand the importance and uniqueness of the covenant family. Walter Brueggemann describes Esau as the family member who is always beside the point. 
Raised in the family of faith, Esau failed to value the blessing. He despised it, traded it for stew. And afterwards, Hebrews 12, 17, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So we have the family of faith, and there comes a point where God chooses one brother and not the other, and he is pitiable. He still wants to be in. He wants to please his father. He doesn't have it in him. He can't even muster up true repentance. Repentance is a necessary symptom of salvation, church. The family of faith fails and is restored time and time again through the gift of true repentance which is something we cannot stir up from within ourselves. Jacob, or Esau sought it with tears. I don't want to give you my testimony again this morning, but I, I just connect with this so much, this, this idea of knowing what was right, knowing that I wasn't accomplishing it, and somehow, despite that, still unable to bring myself to true repentance. It is the gift of God. Esau wanted the blessings. He just couldn't find it in himself to live in obedience to God. And we were all once like this. But those who belong to God celebrate his mercy to us when we are convicted of sin and are brought to true repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the patience to last through such a long portion of it. Father, we desperately need your work in our lives. These points made from Scripture, not that I've come up with, but are the, the points of Scripture are so important to us as we walk our lives daily. Father, I pray that you would help us to trust the promise. Trust what you have granted to us in Christ Jesus and Lord, that that trust would make it so we are no longer scrambling in our sinful ways to try to accomplish what you have already promised. We must lay them down, and we can only do this as you transform us through our minds renewed in the Scriptures as your Spirit gives us the understanding. And Lord, I thank you that we can celebrate true repentance. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning together in repentance, it is not a time of mourning, but God, a time of celebration because you have already freely offered forgiveness to those that you have brought to repentance. And so we come trusting in Jesus who was perfectly obedient on our behalf and continues to work out obedience in us by the Spirit as you give us both the desire and the ability. Bless us now with this change, this sanctification, we pray. Amen.